0: I'm Dr. Thomas Slavin, Senior Vice President of Medical Affairs for Myriad Oncology. Welcome to Inside the Genome. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today, I have Dr. Adam Brusky. He is a professor uh, at UPMC, and I've invited him here today to talk about gene expression assays uh, for breast cancer. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, you hopefully will by the end of the podcast today. So thank you so much for coming on, Dr. Brufsky. I'd love for you just to tell the audience a little bit about yourself and what you do in medicine, your expertise as a clinician, and a little bit about your practice.
1: Sure. So uh, I'm a professor of medicine and um, co-director of the Comprehensive Breast Cancer Center. I'm a medical oncologist. And for many, many years, since really my earliest training, I was always involved in how human genetics and clinical medicine interact. And actually, very, very, very long time ago, I cloned the first mutation, splicing mutations in osteogenesis imperfecta. You guys have a genetics audience, I might as well tell you this stuff. And then mm-hmm. also as a postdoc, I cloned the first mutation in glucocorticoid receptor, the first human mutation. Wow. And so, you know, after training at Harvard, I came here about almost 25 years ago, 24, 25 years ago. And initially it was to do clinical research in prostate cancer. And what happened was they needed someone to do breast and I decided to start doing breast cancer. So I built a big breast program and do a lot of clinical research and also basic, what kind of translational research. I'm very interested, obviously, in molecular assays and the applications of human genetics, of kind of like RNA profiling, other molecular features, both. In the tumor as well as in the tumor microenvironment to kind of like understanding breast cancer and developing new therapies. It's kind of what I do. Yeah. So I've
0: had a long history of doing that. Yeah, that's great. And what does your average week look like from a patient so perspective? Two
1: days. I usually well, it used to be one day, but I, you know, it's anywhere. It's two days now, where I basically have kind of dry lab stuff that I do. Mm-hmm. You know, so in other words, I have a few postdocs and fellows that I work with to try to analyze gene sets. Uh, and develop new assays. And during those days, obviously, I also have a lot of administrative stuff that I do. Uh, Three days a week, I'm in clinic. My clinic is almost exclusively breast cancer uh, of all stages from stage, you know, DCIS, which is the earliest stage of breast cancer, Mm -hmm. uh, all the way up through advanced metastatic disease. Um, That's generally how my week goes. So usually Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, I'm in clinic.
0: Yeah, might sound sound like a busy busy bee. It is. Um, very- I know you because <laughs> uh, we have shared interest in genomic profile assays, and and so there's this whole field that looks at when women get breast cancer, looks at the actual breast cancer itself, uh, at the molecular features of the breast cancer, and there's many different types of assays that are trying to help understand what is this particular woman's risk for a recurrence of that particular breast cancer and also what is the benefit of chemo prevention. So can you use a chemotherapy to prevent the recurrence? And we don't want to unnecessarily give chemotherapy. And so a big portion of this is if we provide a treatment, will it be effective? And what we hope that these breast prognostic assays do uh, to a large extent is help understand if a woman gets chemotherapy, what kind of benefit would she be expected to get from that chemotherapy? In addition to the main question, which is, yeah, does this woman need chemotherapy or not? And then if she doesn't get chemotherapy, you know, what would we expect uh, this particular patient's course to be? And so these assays have been now available for some time. Uh, They're becoming increasingly common and now strongly recommended in all sorts of guidelines for treating Uh, patients with breast cancer. And you are definitely an expert on this topic. And I wanted you to, you know, just kind of talk about your experience with these types of breast prognostic assays, what you think about them, where you think the field is going and things.
1: Sure. Well, let me start from the beginning. I mean, you know, I, as a junior assistant professor, uh, this is now 1998, 1999, you know, had the idea that I would develop a genomic assay, a predictor, from the actual tumor itself uh, to decide who develops um, lymph nodes that are involved. That was mm-hmm. kind of what I wanted to do. Yeah. I actually had the, I had a grant, I had the first grant the Komen Foundation ever gave for it. Oh, wow. And so That's the good. thing is that, I've been very interested in this for many, many years. I mean, the whole concept behind this is that the intrinsic biology of the tumor Kind of decides the ultimate prognosis of the patient, as well as the characteristics of what's going to happen and the responsiveness to therapies. And that's going to be partially right because I think there's this whole other, if we're not, we'll, and we'll talk about this kind of where we think the field's going, um, but there's all these host factors that we haven't even talked about. But getting back to the tumor itself, there were a number of predictors that were developed. The first one, you know, going back even further. So in the, the mid 1990s, it became pretty clear that you can do reverse transcriptase PCR, that is look measure RNA levels in plasma pretty well. Mm-hmm. And they used to do that for, and they still do that for RNA load for HIV. It's really kind of where they got this. And so then a lot of us had the idea of trying to quantify RNA out of paraffin embedded tissue. And it was really, really difficult. I mean, I tried it. I was a, yeah. you know, I was basically a professor, maybe one or two postdocs. It was really hard to do, yeah you know, but, but genomic health figured it out. They figured out how to do it and how to make it reproducible. And the idea is that at least genomic health initially had a 21 gene assay that could basically tell us someone's prognosis. I mean, they went back to retrospectively all these databases they had for the, the NSAVP, which is the National Surgical Breast and Bowel Adjuvant Project that had been going on for 30 years already. And they've been accumulating tissue blocks in the trial. And they used this uh, 21 gene assay to prognosticate the patients. and so. That happened around 2003, 2004. And yeah. what happened is that all of us got really excited and we went to the insurers and said, let us use it. And they mm-hmm. said, why? They said, you're not really telling us anything. And so what happened is that then they said, okay, let's look at a trial called NSABB20, which was a trial where they had women who got hormonal therapy with or without chemo, like tamoxifen with or without chemo at the time, whatever the chemo was at the time, it was I think CMF, it was a really old chemo. And They were able to say the people who had high risk, that is a a score on the 21 gene score of over 31, they had benefit from chemo. And if you had a score under 18, you didn't have any benefit from chemo. And Mm -hmm. so that was really important. And suddenly the insurer said, okay, you now have a a biomarker for telling us whether people can get chemo or not. And so for that reason, then they approved it. The issue with the initial genomic health assay was that you could pretty much was just looking at RNA from things that we could measure very easily with immunohistochemistry, like the estrogen receptor. Yeah. Uh, K67 progesterone receptor her two. And so, you know, we wanted to do more and there was a bunch of assays that were developed. There's one from Agendia, which is a 70 gene assay. We mm-hmm. did not have any of those genes in it. And that actually could predict whether you were high risk or low risk. So a lot of us started using that assay because it gave us, we felt more information. Yeah, 20- it seems
0: like it brought in more cell cycle progression factors. Yeah, it, we just felt okay. it
1: brought in more genes. Interesting thing it didn't share. It shared one gene called CD68 that was mm-hmm. shared between all of them. And CD68 out to be a really fascinating gene we'll get to at the end because it hints at kind of where all of this is going. But it turns out that, you know, we started using that. Uh, the problem with the 70 gene assay is that it was very binary. It wasn't linear. It wouldn't give us an exact number. You couldn't tell a woman... You just could tell you're high risk of recurrence, you may need chemo, or you're low risk of recurrence, and you don't. It didn't tell the precise number, the recurrence number. So then we now have the 12-gene assay, which is made by Myriad, well, was actually made by a company and made by a bunch of people in Europe and kind of sub-licensed mm-hmm. the Myriad. The 12-gene assay does a lot of different things. 12-gene assay gives you a score, but it does it on a continuous variable, and it also tends to use the size of the cancer and the number of lymph nodes that are involved. And so that brings you an entire picture because it turns out the size of the mm-hmm. cancer number of lymph nodes involved turned out to be very important for recurrence between years five to 15, where a lot of these molecular features that that this 21 gene assay was doing, the 70 gene assay was doing, really were more for recurrence in years zero to five. Although there's data now out about nine years for this that still, yeah. that still works for those assays. So you know the bottom line is that For a lot of patients, I've actually moved to the 12 gene assay because these women want a precise number. Because what they're doing when they come to us as a medical oncologist is that, well, what's going to happen to me is the first question. Am I going to die or not? You know, number two, to not die, what do I need to do? Right. Those are the two big questions they ask of breast medical oncologists. And so these genomic tests, at least to a first approximation, can help us out. So a woman will come with an estrogen receptor positive early stage breast cancer that has no more than three nodes, we will run one of these assays on her and we'll build it into the entire equation. Kind of ask someone what their tolerance of chemo, do they mm-hmm. really want it? Are they busy? Does no one lose their hair? You know, you get a sense in talking to women what they really want to do. And then you weave in these assays into your recommendation to the woman. Yeah. It, it really has changed everything. Well, I'm old enough to remember we didn't have any of this stuff that we would just take the pathology report and kind of make an educated guess based on yeah. these molecular assays do a much better job of letting us know who should need chemo and what the prognosis is
0: than anything. Mm-hmm. Else they have. Yeah. And really keep a lot of women off chemotherapy that would not have gotten any sort of benefit anyways, from chemotherapy. Yeah, that's correct. Say.
1: It's about half. It's about half the yeah. women that we normally would given chemo to. We don't anymore. That's great because it's not only losing your hair. It's not only temporarily being sick probably are the potentially long-term side effects of right. chemo that we just don't know about. And, you know, cause we've only been giving chemo for 20 years or so really 20, 30 years of breast mm-hmm. cancer and since the nineties. And I think that it's important that we understand that these are not totally benign things that, you know, yeah, if you need it to prevent recurrence, you don't want your breast cancer to come back. So we give you chemo for that in addition to hormone therapy. But on the other hand, when we can avoid it, at least in my opinion, I try to.
0: Yeah. No, that's great. And, you know, it seems like the three parts of this are in the beginning, do you need chemotherapy? Yes, no. What's the kind of benefit that can be expected from the chemotherapy? And then, you know, where some of these assays are now also starting to be used is trying to figure out if uh, extended endocrine therapy should be used for women. I just want your thoughts on that. Yeah.
1: Right. That's really important too, because again, these therapies aren't benign. Giving a woman extended endocrine therapy can do a bunch of things. It can raise her cholesterol. It can lower her bone density. These are things it can, it can kind of mess a little bit with her called chemo brain and hormonal brain. There are, these are subtle and they're not common, thank goodness. But on the other hand, there are things that you have to take into the, into account. You know, it's not just preventing breast cancer, it's preventing breast cancer, but preventing it in someone who remains a healthy person and a functioning Mm -hmm. person. I think that you got, you know, I've been doing this long enough now to know that it's not just. Preventing breast cancer isn't the be-all and end-all. Everything about a woman and her life that you got to take into account. And I think that this whole idea of giving women more hormonal therapy is not, I mean, it does prevent a certain amount of occurrences. Absolutely. And it may, we're not sure yet, it may improve survival. There's no benefit yet. We do know it improves progression-free survival. We don't improve overall survival yet. So because of that, it's important to have some sort of assay, a molecular assay, that we can get around the guesswork. And so that, you know, there are assays that do that now. There's one that I think is a 5 gene assay. Uh, Actually, it's a 5 or 7 gene assay from biotheranostics. There's, again, we can use this 12 gene assay from Myriad to help us do that. These are very helpful to us. I mean, again, the problem is that these are so new that they often don't get paid. Although I think right now, Medicare at a minimum and most private insurance is now reimbursing it. So we'll see how that goes. I mean, it really depends on your part of the country, but most people are reimbursing these now.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, walk the audience through a little bit of how you approach a patient. You're working someone up for breast cancer. Where, how do you use the assays, have these conversations with your So, patients?
1: you know, so what'll happen is that someone will come to see me, she'll either, generally, let's talk about someone who's post-op. We're not doing like mm-hmm. what we call neoadjuvant therapy, was therapy for surgery. Let's talk about someone post-op. So she'll come to me, she'll have a pathology report, it'll let me know the size of the cancer, that ER, the estrogen positivity, progesterone positivity, HER2, KF67, it'll let me know how many nodes, usually the a sum of a sentinel lymph node dissection, how many lymph nodes have been involved, or involved, if any. And so from there, we'll talk to the woman, get a sense of kind of what's going on, and I'll explain to her, her kind of what her pathology is, what I think is going on. And if it's really benign looking, and we have ways of deciding this, we have something called in our our group, the McGee score. If the McGee score is really low, which is based on the pathology, the immunohistochemistry uh, and the Nottingham score, if that's really low, then a woman will not have one of the genomic tests We'll just give her hormonal Mm -hmm. therapy. But if there's a chance she's gonna need chemo, we'll do one of these genomic tests. And it usually takes two to three weeks to come back on average. And when they do come back, if it comes back low risk, then we'll put her just on hormonal therapy alone and probably radiation. If it comes back high risk, we'll talk about various chemos, then radiation, then hormonal therapy. That's generally how uh, it works.
0: Yeah. And how, how do you think the patients are? I mean, when you see them, are they receptive to using these types of genetic? Very.
1: They're extraordinarily receptive because they want to avoid chemo if they can. Right. You know, yeah. I mean, they'll do it. Most women are going to say, listen, they're not, they're not. I mean, I have occasional women who say no chemo no matter what. And in those women, I'm not going to do the test because I know they're never going to want chemo. Right. But I think, you know, the vast majority of women that I see want to know. And I think that and I always tell people it's better to do this right than fast. You have time because I always tell people what we do in the next three to four weeks isn't going to turn what's going to happen to you tomorrow. It's going to turn what happens to you in the next five to 10 years. And I think that yeah. so that's why I encourage patients. I encourage a total workup like this. I encourage taking the time to wait when these genomic tests are appropriate. I encourage people to take the time to kind of wait for them to come back before we make any decisions.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Excellent. And are you starting to use them more in the neoadjuvant setting? So prior to cancer? Yeah.
1: So one of the ideas is Prior to surgery,
0: I should say. Prior to surgery. Yeah.
1: What we're learning, I mean, you know, it's interesting. We've gone through this whole evolution. So Again, and I've been part of it. I participated in a lot of these clinical trials that are almost 20, 30 years old already, mm-hmm. where we did neoadjuvant therapy on women and found that it, there wasn't a detriment to give the chemo before surgery. Now, yeah. is it any better to give the chemo before surgery? We're not sure. Uh, a certain percentage of women will develop what's called a pathological complete response. That's no cancer left after surgery. Those women have a spectacular survival, over 90%. Yeah. You know? And really, the question is, what do we do with these women afterwards? So we started giving everybody neoadjuvant therapy for a while. And we realized that certain women just weren't responding that well. And it wasn't really kind of affecting their overall survival. And those women tended to be estrogen receptor positive breast cancers. We have a lot of factors that we use when we look at a core biopsy from somebody, whether we think that chemotherapy is going to help or not. And we're we're not the only group. Groups around the country and the world are trying to figure out who is going to benefit From neoadjuvant chemo those with a profound strength of their cancer. I think we're starting to believe that some of these genomic assays can help us in that way. That in other words, if you have a high risk genomic assay, it's likely you're going to have a really high response to the chemotherapy. And so for that reason, some of us are starting to use the genomic assays. Now a lot of us will try to do it based on the characteristics of the profile of the core biopsy. I mean, some of us Mm -hmm. can do it. I mean, we have a way of doing it with what we call the McGee score. So we don't use these molecular tests neoadjuvantly, but a lot of people around the country do. And I think it's a reasonable idea. It's a good use of them,
0: to be honest. Yeah. It does seem like it's shaping up a little bit, like you brought up. I mean, if there's high molecular score, the tumor looks very aggressive, at least on the molecular side. uh, Those are the ones that if they're going to respond to chemotherapy, they tend to in the neoadjuvant setting better. And then if there's a low uh, molecular score and they don't look as quite as aggressive, those people are probably seem to be better candidates to go you know, directly to surgery or if anything, maybe uh, neoadjuvant endocrine therapy, yeah. which is being evaluated. So yeah, thank right. you. No one knows better than you. I mean, where, where do you think that this whole field, I mean, where would you see this field going in 10 years from now?
1: Yeah, I'll tell you, it's really cool. I think, I think what we're starting to learn, just at the edges of all of these tests and some other things that we're doing, is that the immune system is extraordinarily important in the response to adjuvant therapy and what you do think to me and prognosis and survival and i think that we're just beginning to scratch the surface this is really the next quarter century in this business both not only in breast cancer but in all cancers and i think that we're trying to develop immune biomarkers this is where the host comes in now so spent the last 50 years trying to figure out the cancer itself and its characteristics at a molecular level and i think what we really haven't done for a while is look at the host i mean I've been very interested in this because I've been very interested in bisphosphonates in breast cancer for probably my mm-hmm. entire career. And what bisphosphonates really do, they don't really affect the cancer per se. They affect the soil. They affect yeah. the microenvironment that the cancer lives in. Well, I think there's some recent things that have just started to come out that we're starting to think about. Like for example, we know that in certain women with breast cancer, both ER positive or ER negative, they have a survival. If they get bisphosphonates. For up to five years be it zoledronic acid intravenous or even oral bisphosphonates clodronate they have an improved progression free and overall survival and so why is that it's not the tumor it turns out that it probably is some manipulation of the microenvironment and we would love to develop genomic assays to predict who benefits from that and so mm-hmm. that's one thing that people are doing yeah. another thing people are doing is that we now have cdk4-6 inhibitors in the metastatic setting which is a big right. advance And now we're being introduced into the adjuvant setting. There's a trial called Monarch E that was recently announced at ESMO a few months ago. And there's a clear disease-free survival benefit to, in certain subsets of very high-risk patients, there is a clear survival benefit if you give a CDK4-6 inhibitor with endocrine therapy. So what we would love to do is somehow come up with a genomic predictor for benefit from a CDK4, right? Mm -hmm. That way you would know upfront, not only whether you need chemo, but what kind of, whether you need hormonal therapy, whether you need a bisphosphonate, whether you need a CK64, Mm -hmm. all in one, I'd love it all to be one test. Yeah. And guys like me are dreaming about that. I mean, obviously it's probably never going to be one test for a variety of reasons, but it may not even work for certain things. We may not find a predictor, a genomic predictor for these things. But on the other hand, it would be really cool to be able to find a genomic predictor for all these other things. And I've been pushing a lot of people recently to think about that. Again, it's all gonna come back. All of this stuff that we're doing is gonna come back to the immune system. I'll tell you one in particular. CD68, okay, is the one shared gene between the 70 gene assay and the 21 gene assay. And that turns out to be a very important gene in immunity on macrophages. It's really interesting where this is gonna go. People are now presenting immune signatures and prognosis. Uh, at a lot of our meetings, you know, how to integrate those into the existing therapy the existing molecular assays we have, I mean, these are all the questions that a lot of us are going to be kind of thinking about over the next five to 10 years, you know, and then again, we're all getting old, you know, (laughs) we're going to leave this to the next generation, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll set the stage for these guys. I've been doing this a long time. And, you know, I'd love to do it forever. But everybody kind of reaches retirement. So I'm not retiring tomorrow, but everybody reaches retirement at some point. And we just have to set the stage for the young generation, uh, the generation in front of us to kind of take these and run with them. And I think yeah. that's kind of where this is going to
0: go. Yeah. And it, it just seems overwhelming that you can get so much extra information by digging deep into the cancers. And then on top of everything that we're talking about here, I mean, then it also brings in, you know, targeted therapeutics and everything, which correct, uh,
1: absolutely. Uh, has, breast,
0: breast cancer has been a little slow to warm up to for various reasons. And, and I'm just wondering how you think that's going to play out in the future too. Do you yeah, think we're so going mean, to all clearly, breast cancers fairly soon?
1: We, you know, breast cancer, by the way, had the first real targeted therapy. We had trastuzumab, you know, mm-hmm. <clears throat> people tend to forget that for all the targeted stuff that we have in lung and in melanoma and all these other tumors, pancreas now, prostate, we had breast, we had, we had trastuzumab for breast and yeah. tamoxifen targets the estrogen receptor too. That's a targeted therapy too. We've had yeah. that for
0: almost fifty yeah. years.
1: So, you know, the thing is that been a little bit slower to use molecular biology, to find targets. Absolutely. But we, now we have a lot of targets. We have the estrogen receptor, whether you're ESR mutated mm-hmm. or not. So If you're ESR mutated, you do better with full vest strength than aromatase inhibitor. We have PI3 kinase mutations. We now have Pelosib yeah. for that. Uh, we now, in like three to 5% of patients, have HER2 mutations. Mm-hmm. HER2 tyrosine kinase is likely are going to have activity with these people. Even, even I actually published with a fellow a couple of years ago, estrogen receptor amplification. Mm-hmm. that we published a case report. We had a woman with ER amplification and we gave her high dose estrogen based on an animal model that someone else had published. And she had a dramatic response for a year and a half. Yeah, that's great. So, so we have a lot of targets that are really coming out in breasts now. And we also have PARP inhibitors like we yeah. have for ovarian cancer. Right. And, and immune so have-
0: therapies. Yeah. I mean, I
1: exactly. Know. So you can now have that. And so we have all of that stuff. And then on top of it, we're starting to see these signatures that will decide who, who can benefit from immunotherapy, checkpoint inhibitors. And we're going to probably start applying that to breast cancer also. Again, these molecular assays are just going to expand dramatically. I mean, My hope is that we can have one global assay that encompasses it all, but I, that's unlikely because of obviously the competition from all the different pharma that make them. But on the other hand, I think that the idea that we're going to be able to individualize therapy based on the molecular... Aspects not only of the tumor, but of the host herself or himself in the case of other cancers, I think is going to be a really fascinating thing to watch for the next 15 to 20 years. Yeah, yeah. absolutely.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, it's going to be exciting, exciting times ahead. Yeah. I really, really appreciate you coming on the podcast. You have an incredibly deep knowledge base, and your experience is very evident when you casually talk about the timelines here. So, thank yeah. you so much for coming on. I hope. Now at the end of this, our listening population really does have a good handle of different types of gene expression assays and where this whole field is going. So thank you so much uh, from the bottom of my heart.
1: You're welcome. Thank you very much for having me. This has been fun.